So Matthew uh, 21 today is Palm Sunday, and we're going to look at the text here. Uh, Matthew 21, uh, verses 1 through 11. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you uh, for this time that we can gather and worship you and uh, begin to adjust our our minds uh, towards Easter. In the New Testament, the four Gospels devote so much uh, time to this week that we know is the Passion Week uh, from that day that uh, Jesus entered into Jerusalem uh, for the last time on his own accord. Uh, he would be carried out um, basically to go to the cross. And so, Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the significance of uh, what is dedicated to this week in the New Testament. And so, Father, we pray uh, Lord, that you would help us to understand uh, this day, Lord, and most importantly, this week as uh, Jesus the Messiah uh, came and fulfilled uh, just this this great sacrifice on our behalf. We pray, Father, that you would lead us, that you would guide us, Lord, that you would help each one of us wherever we uh, find ourselves on this journey with you, uh, whether we're auditing Christianity, uh, we pray that you would um, answer the questions that need to be answered um, so that individuals can make that step of faith. Uh, for those of us who have responded to the gospel, we pray, Father, that you would draw us close in our understanding and our relationship, Lord. Help us um, just to experience you, Lord, more intimately in our daily lives. We thank you uh, for what this week stands for and what it represents. We thank you that Christ came as our substitute, that uh, the wrath that was due us was placed upon him. And by your grace, uh, through faith, uh, we can enter in, as we just sang, to this relationship with you. And we are eternally grateful uh, for this relationship. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. <clears throat> when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, at the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there, and a colt with her, with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill which was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on, he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he'd entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Father, we do thank you again for this passage. We ask, Lord, that you would 
uh, just give us a better understanding of what Palm Sunday is all about, and may you bless us this day. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen. Okay, so today's Palm Sunday. I've said this a bunch of times. What is Palm Sunday? Uh, what, what's, what's the deal with Palm Sunday? Uh, last week, we, we looked at, at our need for needing a Savior, that we, um, we all have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. This Messiah <clears throat> was promised back in Genesis 3. Um, all through the Old Testament, there's a promise of this Messiah that would come. And ultimately, the Messiah came in Christ, and uh, he went as a suffering servant to the cross. The wrath of God was poured out upon him. He absorbed it in full, and and through his sacrifice on the cross, we can stand before a God uh, knowing that his righteousness has been credited to our account. This is called uh, like the, the idea of imputing his righteousness to our account because our unrighteousness was poured out upon him and, and the wrath of God uh, absorbed the punishment that was due us in full. And so Palm Sunday, I think a lot of this is sort of the idea of uh, looking at the day when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, this would be his last trip to Jerusalem before his death. And when we look at the New Testament, when we look at Matthew in particular, and, and books like Hebrews, that song that we sang, Christina's dad wrote it. Well, he don't know if he wrote it; he composed it. It's the author of Hebrews wrote a lot of those words. And 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 between Matthew and and Hebrews, it's it's this is this Jewish audience wanting to show and authenticate that Jesus indeed meets all of the requirements that were prophesied about the coming Messiah. This, it's, it's overwhelming. And so uh, that's why I'm in Matthew today, sort of looking at, does Jesus sort of fit the bill of being the, the Messiah? And, and Matthew would say, absolutely, he does. Uh, if for your personal reading this week, if you want us focusing on Easter, uh, looking at Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 21 through basically chapter 22, it looks at uh, Sunday through Wednesday of the Passion Week. Then there's sort of a break, and there's two uh, sermons inserted by Jesus, the Olivet Discourse, and there's sort of like an unnamed uh, discourse in there as well. And then it, you get to chapter 26 through chapter 27, and Matthew then looks at Thursday through Saturday of the Passion Week. So if you were to read basically Matthew chapter 21 through chapter 28, you're going to see sort of this last week of Jesus's life. And so I think whenever they, whoever it is that created this holiday of Palm Sunday um, that we sort of, we celebrate today, I think the thought is to get our minds sort of thinking about the cross. That it's Sunday now that as we're going through the week, we can kind of think through the things of the Passion Week leading up to Friday when we come and we take communion and we reflect upon the cross and what Jesus did on our behalf. And then Sunday next week when we, when we remember and reflect upon the risen Christ. And so uh, th- this is a significant uh Week, I believe, probably the most significant week in human history of this Passion Week. And so we look at verse 1, and we read, When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. And so they're, appro- they're approaching the Passover on the map behind me. You can see this journey. Most of Jesus' ministry was in the north of, Jeruz- of Israel. So you can see Israel. And there's the Sea of Galilee up, up top there. There's the red line. 
It would show their flow of movement uh, down to the south. They would cross over the Jordan area to avoid Samaria. And then they would basically pop up to Jericho into Bethany, into Bethphage, and then Jerusalem is, is right there. If we go to the next slide, I think, uh, I think I want to go here now. So we've zoomed in. And on the right, we see Bethany and then Bethphage. And the Bethphage underneath that, you may not be able to read it, but it's, it says Mount of Olives. And this would show the, uh, the journey that Jesus would take uh, into the east gate of the temple. Um, yeah, so we're going to go to the next slide. Okay, so this is the view, modern-day Israel, just so you kind of have it in your, your mind. Uh, what we read today is Jesus is approaching, and they get to Bethphage, and, and today's story is from this vantage point. Um, as you look down the hill of the Mount of Olives, those are, those are all tombs, they're all graves, uh, at the bottom of that where the green trees are, you have the Kedron Valley, and then it's a steep hill back up, and now there are graves all along the wall there. Those were certainly not there during Jesus' time. You see the Dome of the Rock, which wasn't there during Jesus' time. The temple would have been there. And then where the red arrow is, you can see where sort of the east gate is. But up here, there's a road that uh, you go to Israel, you'll walk down that road, and you'll make your way up there. But this is sort of the path that, that he would take. And so this is where Matthew sets it. They've been journeying down. Jesus knows. He's been explaining to the disciples what is coming. Back at Caesarea Philippi, it's sort of starting. It started when Jesus asked the disciples, hey, who, who do people say that I am? And they began to sort of rattle off uh, ideas that they had and rattle off sort of um, what people were saying about him. And then Jesus says, but who do you guys say that I am? And at that point, Peter speaks up and says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, out of boy, you got it. And we don't have to talk about the rest of what Peter did but, and all the stuff. But, but, but from that moment, Jesus begins telling them uh, that he must go to Jerusalem and he must be killed and he's going to be buried and he's going to raise again. And this, starting at that point, was his message. And now They've made their way to the south. They've arrived, arrived at Jerusalem. They've, they've approached it. In our story, they're now at the location where you're looking at behind me, sort of looking in. The city would have swollen in, in uh, population, or not population, but visitors. Uh, the city at the time had about 70,000 people who lived there. And during, uh, during the Passover week, uh, they say that the population would have increased or the visitors would have increased to about 250,000 people, if not more. And there's excitement. There's, there's people. There's more excitement, I believe, in today's story uh, because of um, the... Well, I'll get to it. I don't want to... Spoiler alert. I'll just wait. Um, but so they get there. It's exciting to go into Jerusalem. Like when you, when you go there, you go up the hill, there's sort of like anticipation and, and energy that's building. I, I remember one trip we went there. I don't know if some of you might have been on the trip, but we were going up on the hill and, and we were pulling up to this location. And the tour guide is like, hey, everybody just keep your eyes to the left. There's something really fascinating. You know, and you're at the wild animal park and you're like going on the tram and they kind of tell you everybody like goes over to that side. I'm like, why is he telling everybody to go to the left? It's on the right. 
So I'm like, okay. Like, so everybody's like at the window looking out, and it just looks like a, like a Middle East uh, town. Like, what's, there's nothing to see. He's like, okay, now everybody, I was just joking. Everybody look to the right. And then everybody looks to the right, and they see the Dome of the Rock. They see this, this, this image, and there's like this gasping of like, wow, it's just, it's breathtaking. It's spectacular. Uh, but Jesus, that's not his reaction when he rolls up on Palm Sunday. He rolls up, and his heart is broken. If we were to read over in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through, 41 through 44, we would read this. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. The New Testament records two times that Jesus weeps. The one time is his friend that he, that had died, that he was about to raise from the dead even. And, and here when he sees Jerusalem, he weeps over it. He wept over it saying, if you had known in this day, even the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And so he sees the town. He weeps over it. He foretells what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And he gives this prophecy that critics look back and they're like, oh, there's no way this possibly could be the detail in which he gives. Because in AD 70, following his death, Rome would come by and absolutely decimate Jerusalem. They would go down to the very uh, turning every stone apart. And when you visit Jerusalem today, you can see at at the corner of the, like over here, you can see where they toppled these huge bricks apart because they were inlaid with gold, and they're basically tearing out the gold, utterly destroying the town. And Jesus said, this is what's going to happen because you didn't recognize the day of visitation. I'm trying to figure, I never know how much this, how because I know there's like four of you that really like the stuff to go deep, and then others are like, uh-uh. <laughs> yeah. uh. But back in Daniel chapter 9, and, I, and, I, and this, is, this is an area that you can go and you can, re, re, you can research and study Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. This is a significant piece of prophecy. And, and Daniel says... In Daniel 9, 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people, your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision of the prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and to discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, uh, the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks it will be built again with a plaza and moats, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince uh, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city, the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood, even 
to the end, there will be war and desolations are to be determined. So, oh, let me keep going, verse 27. Um, and he will make firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out upon the one who makes desolate. Okay, so that's a lot to kind of like read there. It's like just reading is difficult. And you can go back and you can you can listen to like studies on, on Daniel. And I always want to be sort of sensitive. Um, like within Christianity, there's a, there's, there's a range of, of understanding of things. And even in today's story, and, and when I look at it, some of the religious leaders were so arrogant that they had actually missed what God was doing in their midst. And, and so while I have firm convictions and understanding about things, I try to, to handle them in sort of a, a humble and sort of like open-handed thing. I would probably be more dogmatic if it was up to me to fulfill prophecy, but that's not my job. Um, and so many would say that at this moment when Jesus approached, especially like I come from a, from a dispensational position, and even those who don't, when they look at Daniel 9, 27, like 24 through 27, they're really confronted with some prophecy, some like some firm timelines there. There's the 70 weeks. Weeks represent different things. They, a week was defined in a different way um, than what we understand it today. It's not seven days. And many hold that when Daniel said this, you could calculate the day that the Messiah would actually enter in to Jerusalem on this day um, at the 69th week. And it seems that when Jesus is here and he enters in and his heart is breaking over the city, and what he says in Luke, it's like, you all should know what is about to happen in your midst. But you're all missing the, the mark. And so when I look at this picture of Jesus about to enter into the city, I, I think a point of application is like, I want to be ready. Like I want to be ready to, to meet my maker, uh, whether it's in death or his coming, uh, how I approach him. When I look at the whole story of the gospels, there were the religious ones who were so arrogant and so caught up in their ways and they lacked humility to see the very Messiah in their midst. And, and then on the same note, when I look at Jesus, his heart is breaking for these people who rejected him. He's, he's weeping over them. And, and our hearts for those that don't know the Lord and don't, haven't responded to his offer, our, our hearts shouldn't be, have animosity towards them. Our hearts should break and long for them uh, to respond. Like, we shouldn't be angry or upset. We should have sadness and tenderness of heart towards them like Jesus has towards them, like he had towards us. So he sees the city, and he has his disciples, and then he's going to dispatch two of them. Jesus then sent two disciples, verse 2, saying to them, go into the village opposite you. So if you're standing upon the hill, you see the village opposite you, like somewhere down over there, they clearly know what he's talking about. Go into the village opposite of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt within it. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, like if the owner happens to say, hey, what are you doing with my animals? Um, Like, why are you stealing my stuff? You shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them on immediately. So either Jesus 
in his sovereignty, in his divinity, understands where they're going to find these animals, and he knows the owner, and he knows how the person will respond, or maybe something was coordinated beforehand when they show up. It's like, oh, you're the Lord's guys. Okay, I was waiting for you. We don't really know. Verse 4, Matthew's uh, commentary on this is super important because Matthew is a Jewish guy. He's trying to authenticate the Messiah to the Jewish readers. That's what he cares about first and foremost. So verses 2 through 3 are sort of like what happened with the colt and donkey, but Matthew says this isn't just about getting Jesus a ride into Jerusalem. This is fulfilling something far greater. And he says, now this took place so that was spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. And he's going to quote here, and he says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so he's saying, like, it's what you're seeing and what you saw in Jesus, this is exactly what you read about. And he's quoting from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10. And so this, this is super critical because as Matthew points out Jesus, as the Messiah, he's not just sort of saying this is random, that this is this guy seems to fit the bill. He points to like Old Testament prophecy after Old Testament prophecy after Old Testament prophecy, basically making the point that there's no way that any other person could fulfill these prophecies that were given. And so verse 6, the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their cloaks on them. And he sat on their cloaks. Um, There's a contrast in the Bible when we see animals and how a king sort of enters in on an animal. Uh, To be on a donkey, this is not a, this is an animal of peace. And so this is like, as somebody with power and might is entering in, they're saying, hey, I'm coming in a friendly manner. Uh, If we look at Revelation and we look at Jesus's return, he comes in on a horse, which is a very different uh, picture. The the image of Jesus's next return for his second coming is sort of on a horse. There's a sword in his mouth. It's this picture of of, uh, not so gentle Jesus. And so in this, this is a humble, meek, mild, this, this king with power is entering in a peaceful way, longing to bring peace to the people. Uh, J- uh, Charles Swindoll describes this sort of, um, this entry into Jerusalem, this, this moment as he gets on the colt and he begins, or the donkey or whatever the animal is, I'm still working on my Valley Center vernaculars here. Um, he gets in and he, it's, it's, a, it's a line of no return. Charles Swindoll writes this, I just happened to read an article about Niagara Falls, where at the time, 30 million gallons of water poured over the precipice each minute. Somewhere just upstream of that sheer drop is a sign indicating the point of no return. If you fall into the river beyond that point, you're going over the edge. This image tied in perfectly with this moment in Jesus's life. He would walk into Jerusalem but he wouldn't walk back out. His disciples would carry him out. And so the weight and the power of this, this, this moment are, are seismic. This is huge. Um, Jesus knows what he's getting himself into. He has uh, 
gotten out of other predicaments over the last three years, sort of saying, it's not my hour, it's not my hour. Well, now the hour has come. And it's time for him to, to enter into Jerusalem publicly um, and to declare his messiahship to the world. And so the crowd would respond. We read the crowd. This isn't the same crowd that's screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him uh, later in the week. This crowd is anticipating the Messiah. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Now the crowd's going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, uh, which means save us, we pray, from Psalm 118, verse 25. Uh, where did I? Um, shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So they're recognizing Jesus as being the fulfillment as of Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 7, which is the Davidic covenant, recognizing that this is the Messiah that would fulfill the eternal kingship over Israel. They're screaming over and over, like sort of uh, bookends of this, Hosanna, save us. The problem is they missed the suffering servant. And in their minds, they're very patriotic. Um, palm branches during that time for Israel. This would be this would be the equivalent of us taking like an American flag and waving it on the Fourth of July, longing for their independence. This this people Israel who has been in captivity under Rome, and Rome was the authority and power in their land. They want to be liberated. They want to be set free. And they understood, their, so they're not quite wrong. Their timing is off. They were looking at this powerful verse. Uh, Matthew quotes from Zechariah chapter 9. A few chapters after Zechariah chapter 9 comes Zechariah chapter 14. And in this one, I want you to look at this picture of, of the Mount of Olives. The stage is set. Uh, Jesus on this side looking across the line to the east gate. And Zechariah would prophesy on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west, forming a very large valley. Half of the mountain will be moved to the north and the other half towards the south, and you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there will be no light. The luminaries will die out, for it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about at the time of the evening, uh, there will be light. And on that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. And it will be summer as well as winter. And the Lord will be king over the earth. On that day, the Lord will be the one and his name, the only one. And so they have this prophecy in their mind. They don't have 
they don't have five chapters earlier about the donkey going in, Isaiah 53, the, the humble servant. They have the big, majestic, national leader that was going to liberate them. And in this in this passage in Zechariah chapter 14, the, the image is that Jesus is going to sit here, stand here. There's going to be an earthquake. There's going to be a split. He's going to enter in through the east gate. Water is going to flow out like massive amounts of water. Now, they've discovered water under, Israel, under Jerusalem. If you go there, you'll go through the Hezekiah tunnel. You have the dry option, the wet option. They realize that down underneath is is a reserve of water that would accommodate all of this. It's 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 oh, it's kind of uncanny, isn't it? Like just happens to have all of this stuff. Now today, you can't enter through the east gate. the The Temple Mount is controlled by Palestine. It's controlled by the Muslims. The Muslims are very opposed to a number of these prophecies from the Old Testament. And so while there's Graves going down, they've also up along the wall, they've, the Muslims have started to bury because that would make the, the ground unclean. And you'll also notice, well, maybe we could go to the next slide to zoom in what they've done to the East Gate. It's not very accommodating, is it? They've, they've put graves right up to the door so that the, so that the, the land is unclean. And they've walled it up so the Messiah can't enter in there. Then you read Zechariah and you're like, oh, now the earthquake kind of makes sense. So why would it like open things up? But this is super challenging to me. Like, like they're super patriotic and it comes from the scripture. Like they, they want the Messiah to come, what they're longing for, but they're missing what God is doing in their very midst. And, and I know, like, this is like, like for me, like we as Americans, I don't know why it is, but we tend to, to confuse like our patriotism with being Christian. And it's just simply not in the Bible. Like America is not anywhere in the Bible. The only place you can like remotely find the United States in the Bible is if you categorize it with the nations. <laughs> That's like, and how they relate to, to Israel. And so they're all wrapped up. They have their palm branches out. They're like, oh, yes, we want our, our Messiah is here. He's going to overthrow Rome. This is like wonderful. This is exciting. But that's not what Jesus was coming to do. Not at that time. Certainly, I believe that Jesus is going to come again for the second time. And things will be different upon his second entry. But he enters into the town. And in verse 10... When he'd entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred. Um, Larry Osborne said it was a seismic shock that, that, that affected the city. Like this was not a small thing. Jesus entered in and the people are asking, who is this? And quite frankly, this is like the most important question you could answer. Who is this? The crowds were saying, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. It reminds me back at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, the prophet, Elijah. Others say this, others say that. But who do you guys say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And this is what Jesus entered into the city to proclaim that he was indeed the Messiah. 
when we look at the Bible, starting in Genesis chapter 3, there's this promise that, that God would send the Messiah. All throughout the Bible, everything points to Jesus being the fulfillment of this Messiah. That because of our sin, we've been separated from God. Jesus has created the path for us to get right with God and to have a relationship with God through his sacrifice on the cross. Our sins have been paid for. If you choose to respond, it's not by your own works. It's based on God's grace alone. We respond in faith, trusting what he has done for us. Last week, we saw that we were great sinners and he is a great savior. And this, this week highlights, it is the, the jugular vein of, of Christianity. It's the jugular vein of the message of God that he has sent his son to provide atonement for us. And there are really only two reactions to Jesus. Our default position is rejection. Our default position, our heart looks a whole lot like that gate. It's walled up. I have all of these reasons why Jesus is not butting into my life. And you might be somebody who loves the Lord, and you've been trying to like share with somebody over and over and over and over and over for years and years and decades and decades. And it can be discouraging because you're like, oh, this is like a heart. But I tell you that God can break and open up the hardest of hearts. Amen. This morning, I received a text message from a dear friend. I was like, thanks, man. You just totally like ended my sermon for me today. But my buddy Dirt, uh, I always forget his real name. Um, Mark is his real name. But we were in the SEAL teams together, and I had become a Christian, and dirt like busted my chops. That's putting it very mildly. He, he, was, he was ruthless towards me in my conversion and harassed me for years and years and years. Like, I, all I could do was just sort of keep my distance, and then we would like see each other. Like, the reality is, we would see each other at funerals when we'd lost buddies, and I could see his like. I could just see him physically deteriorating from combat and just to the point to where one of the times I saw him, eyes were sunken and he was just shaking. And I'm like, dude, are you okay, man? Like, I'm like, really? And he's like, I've just been blown up one too many times and I'm doing this for money. And it was like, you could tell he was at like a real crossroads. And this morning I get a text from Dirt. And he says, hey, Gunner, I was thinking of you this Palm Sunday if you remember me telling you that it was Easter weekend, that God came to rescue me from myself, I also wanted to let you know I'm doing awesome, and it's because of the grace of the Lord who decided enough was enough and saved me. My family and I are heading to church as I've done regularly since you baptized me. Thank you for being a friend. Like You might, you might be this person with this hard heart, and I can tell you, I should have written the words from, you know, God's going to cut you down. The rambler, the gambler, the, you know, like, God's going to cut you down. Like, God is relentless with his grace towards us. If you are alive today and you have your heels in the ground and you're holding, God's not going to, like, go, okay. He's going to chase after you because he loves you. He cares for you. 
And if you, as a child of God, are like Jesus, looking into Jerusalem, and you're weeping at those that you, you love whose hearts look like this, Like, I didn't know the Apostle Paul, known as Saul. We have a whole rap about it. I don't know if you guys, the summer nights is coming. Um, but I knew dirt, and I knew myself. Like, th- there's a lot of hard characters out there that God knows how to slice through their hardness and, and get to the crux and to show them their sin and their need of a Savior. And I, and I think that that's what today is, as we're leading, you know, praying, like, like the, the, the odds of your friends coming to church on Easter Sunday are very high because that's like the one day a year that people are open to going. And so my prayer is that we would worship God as his children and that we would not grow weary in trying to display his goodness and his, loves to a world, his love to a world around us. Um, so let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We praise you, Lord, for this day, Palm Sunday, that we reflect upon Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. It was the, um, it was the, the, the line of no return. It seems like throughout his, his life and his ministry, he could have rejected this plan to redeem a fallen world. But we thank you that even as he would pray in the days to come in the Passion Week, that if there was any other way that you would take this cup from him, we thank you that he pressed on. We can only imagine the sorrow and pain that he went through going to the cross physically but even more so, uh, bearing the weight of the world's sin, past, present, future, that this would be poured out upon him, that your wrath would inflict upon him everything that was due us. We, it's, we, it's impossible for us to take this in. But Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this great truth that Jesus stood in our place, that he was our substitute, and that he absorbed our punishment in full. We thank you. For those of us who have responded, Lord, to the gospel, we just worship you. We give you thanks and praise. We pray that you would help us to, to walk in your love and in your grace, and that you would give us patience, and that you would give us a love for the world around us that doesn't know you. And Father, for those who may be listening, who, whose hearts are closed off and, and, and walled off, Lord, we ask that you would begin just removing those bricks, whether you just break the wall down all at once or you just continue chipping away. We ask, Lord, um, that ultimately for their sake, that they would experience the forgiveness that's available to them through Jesus. Um, we pray that you would show them that they could indeed be liberated and that they could experience new and a transformed life in Christ. I don't know what it is that individuals need to 
to be pushed over. But I just pray, Father, that you would show them yourself. Lord, help them to experience you in a way that they would fall down before you and receive the gift that you are offering them. We thank you, God, for how good you are to us. We thank you for your kindness, which leads us to repentance. We pray that you would help us to keep our eyes on you all the days of our lives. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen.